If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, as we continue in our study of this epistle. James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Listen as I read God's Word. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word would penetrate each one of our hearts, that it would be by your spirit the very thoughts and intentions that you desire for us to receive. For they are your words. And I pray, Father, as we consider them, not just having read them, but now to look more closely at what you have and are telling us, we would be again reminded of your love for us and your call for us to love you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I started uh, dating my wife, actually, in high school. We met our se- right before our senior year in East Tennessee. And so, um, not that I encourage any of my three daughters for that type of situation, but for us, it actually was God's providence in our lives. And so, as we began in an early, early time in our life, we knew that we wanted to um, pursue college. And so, we just kind of went at a pace in our friendship and relationship back then that hopefully was commensurate with that trajectory of thinking, well, if after college we still have a desire, affection for each other and, and so forth, we will see what God does. But that, that's years away. So we began down the journey. I went away my freshman year. She stayed at home and went to college. And then eventually God led us to the same college uh, our sophomore years where we both transferred from our respective locations to that one place. And as we went through that time together, our sophomore and our junior year, um, I kind of felt like, well, you know, the pace is pretty good. We'll just kind of see what happens as we go along. And so we came to the summer before our senior year, and my wife Charlotte was asked to go and considered to go and did plan to be away for summer and a youth kind of, as a youth intern working in a ministry up in uh, Indiana. 
So just before the night before she was to depart and go away to Indiana for the whole summer, and I was going to be just staying at home working, trying to earn money for college, um, we went out for dinner and, you know, just talked about what summer she was going to have ahead of her the next day. And we just kind of began to have a very tense discussion about kind of our relationship and different things. And, and so before I knew it, she was going to the house, and I was standing there, and we were in an argument right before she was going to leave for the whole summer. Now, at that point, before she was going to leave, she did not know what I knew in my mind, which was this. I already had, God had provided an opportunity for me to get an engagement ring that I knew one soon, probably in the next six months, I was going to be giving to her to ask her for her hand in marriage, that I had already planned while she was gone for the summer, I was going to ask her father for her hand in marriage while she was gone. I was going to go over to the house sometime that summer and sit down and have the talk with her dad. All these things I knew, but she had no idea. And I thought, well, surely, you know, this is going to work out just fine. Also, ever since we were 16 years old, I had never said the words to her, I love you. Never. For me, those words were going to mean something very, very powerful at some point. But I just sensed at that point in our relationship that she needed to hear the words from me that I loved her. So, standing there, I said those words to her, and as soon as I did, she, the whole countenance and the relationship changed because she understood finally when I said those words what it meant. Because we had talked about that for years, but I actually said the words. Here's the thing. We can say, I love you to anyone. We can say, I love you to God. But the demonstration of what those words mean is a whole different story. Living out what we profess or to whom our love is professed is a whole different thing than just simply professing it. Today, James is addressing this very subject. He's almost asking the question, so tell me again, show me again, who do you love? That's kind of the question he's putting out there to us in this very passage. James is challenging his readers to consider in their own lives what their profession of loving God and following him really looks like to break it down. It's just saying that you love someone is merely words, but living out the demonstration of it is what James is trying to get us to consider. He's challenging us. He's challenging everyone who claims to love the Lord Jesus to consider what that means. First, <clears throat> he challenges us to consider, are we lovers of self? Then he will challenge us to consider, are we lovers of the world? And then after that, we will see that we are truly loved by God, which will then give us a heart's motivation to be lovers of God. So let's look first of all when James speaks about what it means to be a lover of self. Verses 1 through 3, James chapter 4. <clears throat> he asks right at the beginning, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and cover, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, but you do not have because you do not ask God. 
And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know, sometimes we mistakenly view the early church merely through a few passages like Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, And all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. When you read verse 32 of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, you're like, wow. Just rainbows and white doves flying around everyone, and it just seems like an amazing experience to be part of the church at that time. And surely was an amazing thing. The Spirit of God was moving in power. And these things we've been reading in verse 32 are not possible without the power of God and His presence in the lives of brothers and sisters living in community. But it wasn't long after Jesus' ascension when He departed and left and the church was then given to the apostles and the disciples to then establish and begin to lay the foundations for the church on earth that began to see issues arise in the lives of those in the church and the leaders of the church needing to address the struggles and the strife one with another. James uses very strong language here because there were struggles in the body of the church. There were struggles among brothers and sisters fighting and quarreling he says, what causes these things among you? Not fighting with those outside, but fighting even amongst themselves, struggling relationships one with another. He says, you kill and you covet, but you can't have what you want. You kill and you covet. Is he literally saying they were murdering one another? Well, probably not. It's probably more of a hyperbole used to say, just as Jesus said, whenever you hate your brother, it's the same thing as committing murder. And along those lines of thinking, when we hate someone in a sense, just as Jesus has said, we're killing them. We're, we're having that much in our heart a set against that brother, that sister, that person. And so when, he's, when James says, you kill and you covet, it's almost like he's saying, it's as if he's saying, you hate and you covet. You want what someone else has, and you, you hate the fact that you don't have it yourself. And he uses this strong language. But where is the source of these quarrels and fighting that James speaks of? Where's the source? Well, it's, as James uh, mentions, it's, it's not the Roman government. He doesn't speak about the Roman government being their source of fighting and struggle and strife, though we know that it exists. And it certainly is mentioned in other places in Scripture. It wasn't necessarily the Pharisees or the Jewish elites, the religious leaders, the zealots that were putting the law forth as the means by which they would have a relationship with their God. That wasn't what he addressed here as where the source of their strife was coming from. It was not even the pagans those whom they knew were outside the church, no relationship with them as far as a relationship of the Spirit, but yet it wasn't even the pagans that were so against Christ that there was causing this source of quarreling and bickering and fighting amongst them. So what is the source that James 
is challenging them with. Where's their, where's their bickering coming from? Where's their fighting coming from? Where is all the problems really coming from? Where, well, the believers in the church here in Rome and outside of Jerusalem, they were fighting because of their own desires. What was in their own heart, James says. Look at verse 2. You want something, he says, but you don't get it. You want something so bad, but you can't have it. You kill, you hate, or you covet, but you cannot have what you want. Therefore, you quarrel and you fight. You don't have and you really want. How many times in our own lives, as James is reminding us, do we quarrel and fight, even with brothers and sisters, even with those we're close to, maybe our spouse or our children or our parents? How many times do we fight with even those and probably more often, even those we're closest to, because we're not getting what we want. I want something and I can't get it, so I end up in, at enmity with someone because I perceive that they're, they're preventing me from moving towards my desire or they're not providing for me that which I want them to provide. They're not with the program that I have, and so we struggle, and we end up then quarreling and fighting. If I were to ask any of you here this morning, in the past month, six months, maybe even the past year, how many of you have prayed for something for, from God, you don't have to raise your hand, and you did not receive the answer. You asked God for something and you did not get the answer you asked for. Probably most everyone in here has had that experience in the past year. Whatever it might be, maybe it deals with a relationship, maybe something in related to your job or at work, something financial at home, but you've asked God, maybe it's a physical healing, a need in your own physical need. Maybe it's for someone that you love dearly, but you've asked God and it hasn't been answered, even though you've asked even more than once. Well, James challenges these who are quarreling and bickering, and he says, now, you quarrel and fight, you don't have because you do not ask God, but he says, but when you even ask you ask with wrong motives. Wrong motives, and that's why you do not receive. Because your motive for asking is that you will simply get what you want. Your purpose for going to God in prayer is that you get what you want. That's why you're praying. That's a, um, a convicting thought, isn't it? For all of us. How often do we go to God in prayer because we want something from Him? For us, for our pleasure, or at least for what we perceive we want and need. You might say, yeah, but God, has, God, God hasn't really asked or hasn't given me what I've asked for in prayer, and I, I don't understand why. Well, it is possible. I'm not saying it's absolutely 
a fact that the reason you haven't received what you've asked for in prayer is because of this very specific reason. You've only asked with motives of selfish desire. But if you haven't considered that that could be the case, James challenges us to do, at least take an inventory. At least give it an opportunity to reflect and consider your own heart as you go to God and seek Him in prayer. If our prayers seek to bring glory to God and further His kingdom and put His agenda as the first priority in our life, then I believe God, as He says, will open heaven's floodgates because they are His desires and what He wants. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, This then is how you should pray. You're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus saying there? This is how you should pray. Putting the Father's agenda first. It's what his desires are. It's what his kingdom seeks to accomplish and to move and to do. It's His name that is really the most important thing. Not mine, not my kingdom, not my will. It's His will. And that's what Jesus is reminding us as we come to seek the Father in prayer. How do you know if as you're seeking God in prayer, how do you know if you're asking with wrong motives? Practically speaking, do you know if you're asking with wrong motives or not? How would you know that? Hopefully, it's not making you gun-shy to go to God in prayer just by bringing up James' exhortation. Don't leave this place and say, well, I'm never going to go to prayer because I may be asking with wrong motives. That's not what I intend for you to get from this. But yet, it would be helpful to consider, well, how might I move towards God with the motives that He desires? How might I even know if I am struggling with selfish motives in prayer? I thought about this week, and here's some questions that you could probably ask yourself as you come to try to think, am I going to the Lord with motives that are for me? Ask yourself, how much of my prayer life is asking God for things that benefit me? Just look at kind of your general prayer life. Look in the past week, month, however long you want to take. Just take a period of time and think about what is the content of your prayers as you speak with the Father? What's the content of them? How much of your prayer time with the Lord is seeking Him for things that you really want for yourself? Nothing wrong with asking God. Scripture even tells us, James has already says, we have not because we, ha we have not asked even for wisdom or for other things, God wants us to come to Him as His children with our needs, no matter how small or how large. That is clear. But yet, just look at the overall picture. Ask yourself the second question. How much time do I spend asking God what He wants to do in me or through me in my prayer time? 
ask yourself the question, God, how much do you, what do you want me to do? What do you want to do in me right now in my life? What do you want me to do in following you? What are you calling me to consider about my life or about my relationships, about the church I'm in, about the job, all the things in your life? Just asking God rather than going with specific things that you've already decided are needed to be fixed. Just start from a blank slate and say, God, I come with no agenda. I want you to lead me and guide me and show me what is it you want me to know. And just start there. A third thing you could ask yourself is in assessing your own motives and prayers. How much time do I spend in the scriptures seeking to want to know what God's desires are for me in my life? Do you spend time in the Scriptures seeking God, understanding what it is He wants? For that's where He primarily reveals Himself, is in His Word, as that's what He's given for us to follow and to know Him through His Word. That's another good question to ask ourselves. And lastly, ask yourself, why am I praying for the things I'm praying for? Why do I pray for this? Think about the things you're, you're currently praying for in your life. Go through each one of them and say, why am I really praying for this? Why am I praying for this? Be honest when the answer comes to mind. Be thoughtful, but be honest with God. He knows your heart anyway. But be honest and answer that question. Well, why am I praying for that, really? Rather than just keep praying and asking for things upon things, ask yourself, why do I want this so bad? And if I don't get it, why am I so frustrated, maybe resentful, or that, I'm not, that it's not being answered the way that I want it to be answered? Ask God to reveal your motives to you. Now, all those things, if you went through that process, you would know. You would know if you're asking God with motives that are for yourself. But it takes effort to do that. It takes time. It takes a willingness from the heart to seek God as we pray in this way. But James doesn't just challenge us to be self, not to be self-lovers, but he also challenges us here to not be lovers of the world. Look at verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but James is using pretty strong language at this point now. You adulterous people. What does that sound like? The Old Testament prophets, does it not? You go back in the Old Testament when the prophets are speaking to the entire nation of Israel, and God is speaking through them as they are his mouthpiece, and they use this kind of language towards Israel in the Old Testament. James addresses the audience here much like the Old Testament prophets addressed Israel. Over and over, God addressed his own people in the Old Testament as being, being spiritually unfaithful, being spiritually adulterers. Jeremiah, a prophet of God in his ministry, chapter 23, says this, The land is full of adulterers. 
Because of the curse, the land lies parched, and the pastures in the desert are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Speaking of the prophets, even in the nation of Israel, were using their own ministry for their own gain and for their own power and turning, not doing it for the motives that, for motives that were for God and glorify Him. So Jeremiah is just clearly, just like James, or James is doing just like Jeremiah, saying to those that are professing to love God, professing to follow Him, listen, you're acting as if you're spiritually committing adultery. Spiritually being unfaithful to the one that you profess your love to. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Or he says, being, <clears throat> Choosing to be a friend of the world, become, you become an enemy of God. Again, strong language. Hatred toward God is being a friend of the world. What does friendship with the world look like? Have you ever thought to ask that question? What does friendship, James says we shouldn't do it. So what does that look like to be a friend of the world? Have you thought about, are you a friend of the world? Am I a friend of the world? Because if I really am, James says, that's being an enemy of God. So I certainly don't want to be a friend of the world, and yet I live in this world. We do live in the world. We cannot escape it until God calls us to be with Him. But yet, we're called not to be friends. As lovers of God and followers of Christ, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus teaches about this in a prayer to the Father. John chapter 17. He says in the prayer to his Father, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, of course the disciples, those that follow him, those whom God has given to the Son, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Read that again. My prayer is not that you take them out. That's what Jesus says in that prayer. He doesn't want us out of the world right now, per se. But he says, I pray that you protect them from the evil one while they're in it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus clearly in his prayer is showing us that he has called us to be in this world. And he protects us while we're in this world. And he provides for us while we're in this world. And so we are called to be in the world, but not, as James says, to be friends of the world. Think about friendship. We're trying to assess what it means to be a friend with the world. Just think about your own friendships. Any friend. What about friendships? When you're friends with someone, you have a close relationship, do you not? Someone you really call a close, close friend? Well... You have an intimate relationship with them. You know one another very well. And that's a friendship. When you're in that kind of a close friendship, 
what is important to your friend is important to you. And vice versa. What's important to you is important to your friend, right? Absolutely. That's what close friends have. Jonathan and David in the Old Testament had that friendship, had that kinship. What was important to Jonathan was important to David. And what was important to David was important to Jonathan. They were close friends. When you have a close friend, you invest time. You invest resources. You invest energy into that relationship, that friendship. The deeper the friendship, the greater sacrifice you're willing to make. Casual friend, you will not make much sacrifice for them. Deep, deep friendships, you will make greater sacrifice for. The deepest relationships we have on earth are the deepest sacrifices we're willing to make. Therefore, the closer and the greater the friendship, the greater the willingness to make the sacrifice. The greater the friendship, the more likely that also we'll be influenced by that friendship. You'll find often the way you think is influenced by those that are closest to you. And the way also you influence others is through deep, committed relationships as well. So those are truths about friendship. Now just take that and transfer it to a friendship of the world. If we find ourselves investing so much time and resources into the world, might we be gaining a, a relationship that we should not be gaining with the world, a friendship? Well, are we investing too much time and energy into the things of this world? If so, then maybe we're gaining friendship with the world in a way that would not honor the Father. Are we making great sacrifices just so that things in this world would be as we want them? Again, taking those same thoughts, and if we come up with many answers yes to the questions, we might want to take a second look and ask ourselves, am I being friends with the world? Do I have a friendship with this world in a way that is really pulling me away from my relationship with Christ? James says, friendship with the world will make us enemies with God, simply because we cannot have both. We cannot have a relationship with God and yet have and seek a relationship with the world in the same way, at the same level of investment and in what we give to that relationship. It's just not possible. <clears throat> and so, James has challenged us to be not lovers of self or of the world, but then he moves from challenging us in those arenas to now saying, let me tell you what's so important about your relationship and how God views it. Loved by God. Verse 5, he asks, do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? What does that mean? What's that question being? What does the question mean that James is asking? Well, James again is showing his Old Testament Jewish roots, his perspective from the Old Testament understanding, and uses language much like the prophets did again with Israel. James is referring 
to the jealousy of God here in verse 5. When he says, do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Well, that's the Spirit of God is desirous, envying or desiring intensely a relationship with us, that intimacy with us. And so, in fact, Moses even told Israel when he was leading them that a whole other name for God was jealous. Remember back in Exodus 34, Moses says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Reminding us that God is a jealous God for his people. He wants us to be all his. In the second commandment, God described himself as being jealous. He even spoke in the commandments and described himself. Deuteronomy chapter 5, you shall not make in the second commandment yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous for us. Why would someone be jealous? If you've been jealous in your life, why would you be jealous? Well, it's because we don't want the other person that is the object of our desire to have a desire for others. I don't want the person that I am in relationship with to have that same affection they have for me to have it for someone else. The most appropriate expression of that is in marriage. When a husband desires his wife and a wife for the husband, well, no husband or wife desires to see their spouse have the same desire and affection for anyone else other than them. And when that happens, then a jealous desire comes forth. I mentioned that Charlotte and I dated for almost six years and so forth before we got married. Well, during that time in college when we were together, um, being kind of a typical guy, I probably did not express myself very well to, to her, again, about how I was viewing our trajectory of our relationship at that point, sophomores in college and so forth. Maybe it was our junior, I can't remember, but <clears throat> I do remember this. I've never been jealous about her regarding someone else, ever, except one time. And it was our sophomore year in college, or maybe it was junior year. We were together, kind of just going along, and she asked me a question one day outside the student center. So where do you think our relationship is going? And I went, "Uh, well, I, I don't really know exactly. I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's, you know, we're friends, right? That's what I said. This is after three years. We're, we're good friends, you know, so let's just... Well, I blew it completely. It just... I could just see her whole countenance. I just completely said the wrong thing. And so she said, well, then, okay, we'll just be friends. And then departed. Well, that weekend coming up on, uh, in our student life, there was a social event going on. And so I had not talked to her about us going together this, to this social event. 
And I didn't feel like probably I had the I should do so based upon where I felt like the discussion went. So I didn't bring it up to her. But that weekend, I was kind of doing something on, I think it was a Friday or Saturday night, and I happened to go by the library, and I saw her with another guy. I had never seen her with anyone else ever in my life for any reason. But this guy, I could tell they were on a date. I couldn't, I can't describe to you what within me changed, but something just snapped. And I knew that that just didn't look right. And I had to do something about it. So, sure enough, I'm not sure if it was that evening or the next day, we talked and I expressed to her what I felt when I saw that. And then we became clear as to where our relationship was. I became more crystal clear as to where our relationship, and I expressed that to her, and she became more clear. So it helped. But yet, I tell you, I did not want her to have a, an affection for anyone else the way that I had hoped and saw that she had for me. God is so much even more than that. Our relationship with him is so much even greater than that. You see, God is pure. And his desires are absolutely pure and selfless. You see, in, a, in some way, Charlotte needed to me, for me to have a desire for her. And that's right and appropriate. But God needs no one. He doesn't even need us to have a desire for him. He wants it. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. And wanting that kind of a desire, that's the jealousy of God, wanting us for himself. We are the object of his desire. That's the essence of God's jealousy for us. Because he knows when we are completely his, we are the ones benefited. We are the ones that receive so much blessing in that. Moving on in verse 6, he says, but he, that is, God gives us more grace. James reminds us not only of God's jealousy for us, but he reminds us that God still pursues us with his grace in spite of loving ourselves and even loving the world. As we grow more deeply to grasp what the gospel means in our life, we understand God's jealous love for us and what that means. We're reminded by his grace poured over us even while we are running sometimes toward other lovers. But it's God's grace and his kindness to us that motivates us to love him. His jealousy for us and his grace poured over us, that motivates us to then finally, as James speaks to us in verse 7 through 10, to become more lovers of God. That we will be ones who not just say we're lovers of God, but we are demonstrating in our lives we are lovers of God. You know, verses 7 through 10, if you count them, how many imperatives just in those few verses are there? Ten. Ten imperatives. You know, grace is our motivation, but yet... There are directives that we must respond to and realize that are important. 
Ten imperatives that James speaks about. The tone of James' words ring much again like the Old Testament prophets calling out to Israel or calling out to Judah to come back from their sinful rebellion and their turning away from the one that they love. James knows that the only way that a child of God can be a lover of God is if he or she is not a lover of other things. He knows that. And so he challenges us with these just barrage of imperatives. Submit to God and resist the devil. James is reminding us as we obey God's authority that we also will be able to resist Satan's schemes as we submit ourselves to God. Because when we're focused on submitting to God, then Satan is obviously a secondary in our life. And the things that he desires and his temptations won't gain as much of our attention because we're submitting to God and focusing on Him and our eyes are not wandering around waiting and just looking for other things that will draw us away from God's love for us. Come near to God and He will come near to you. Again, as we draw near to God, we see what? God's holiness. When you draw near to God, God's holiness becomes so much brighter. And when that happens our own sinfulness becomes so much greater. So when we draw near to God, and He does draw near to us, we see God's, His character more clearly, and we see our own sinfulness so much greater. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. Language, again, that emphasizes cleansing. Cleansing from that which has taken us away. Discarding of our own sin. He says, you double-minded. Again, James reminds us of the implausibility of loving God and loving the world simultaneously. That's being double-minded. When you seek to try to love God and love the world, love something else at the same time, in the same way, with the same affection. It is being double-minded. And James says, that's not possible. And if you seek to do it, you will certainly lose one, your relationship um, in pursuing the love that you profess. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and joy to gloom. Sounds much like Puritan language. Of course, it sounds like the Old Testament prophets. Grief, mourn, and wail. Again, the commands are much like what the prophets told Israel when, he, when the prophets called them to repentance. But, you know, think about these words, grieve, mourn, wail, laughter into mourning, and joy to gloom. These are all words describing expressions around what? Death. They are. You don't grieve and mourn and wail, uh, typically around things except of great loss and even in death. That's exactly what James is calling us to think about. He's calling us to think about putting to death the very things that are trying to pull us away from our first love. That's why he uses that language. That's why the Old Testament prophets use that language. It's death language, but that's a good thing because as we kill that and put to death that which otherwise is drawing our hearts away from the one that we profess we love? James says repentance is putting to death that which pulls us away from God. Romans 6, 
Paul writes, in the same way, Romans chapter 6, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count ourselves, and this is to Christians, dead to sin. There is a choice we must make. We profess to follow the one we love, and we must make the choice at the same time to put to death that which seeks to devour us, which seeks to pull us away from the one that we say and we desire to love. And as we do so, we will not be merely those who profess that we love God. We will be those whose lives, both together as his church and wherever we are, demonstrate the very love that we profess.